This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we're continuing our series on the book of Mark. So we encourage a worldview at the Constructionist that's built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we are examining the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not going to be fabricating anything as many have done. And so we want to give you information and ideas. And when we give you facts and figures and such, we want to help you find those also. So we're going to note where those are from. And if we're guessing on something, then we're going to tell you it's a guess. So our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination, especially through the scriptures to the book of Mark. So tonight we're going to be um, in a thinking space where we are presenting these thoughts and we're making our best attempt to explain very practical theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the construction of this podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our give page. You can also support us through our Patreon page at The Constructionist, and your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like this. But more importantly, we wanna hear from you and engage with you. We believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and to grow together. So we value your feedback, questions, and ideas, and we're excited to build a community around our shared exploration called a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. So thank you, Sherea and Jake, for joining me tonight as we examine the book of Mark. And so we want to start in Mark chapter 14. 14. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be in verse 21, excuse me, 27. 27. Yep, 27. And Sherea, I think you have your voice back. I do. Awesome. So why don't you go take us from verse 27 and stop at, well, let's go to the end of, um, end of 39. Let's just okay. do that. Yeah. Jesus said to them, you will all falter in your faithfulness to me. It is written, I will hit the shepherd and the sheep will go off in all directions. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if everyone else stumbles, I won't. But Jesus said to him, I assure you that on this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter insisted, if I must die alongside you, I won't deny you. And they all said the same thing. Jesus and his disciples came to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to them, sit here while I pray. 
He took Peter, James, and John along with him. He began to feel despair and was anxious. He said to them, I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert. Then he went a short distance farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that, if possible, he might be spared the time of suffering. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. All right. So uh, in the first part... There's more to it there, Kevin, if you want to have him finish. There it is, more. but... <clears throat> Do you think that that is... I think we should, well, I I've just had a, go two ahead. verses left to get go to 39. It. Do it, do it, do it. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to pop up on the screen. Yeah, that's, we're missing well, some the, stuff in the middle, but I have the text in front of me. So go for it. it. 37 and 38. Video. Yes. He came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay alert for one hour? Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. The spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. Again, he left them and prayed, repeating the same words. That's 39. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, go for it. Go to 42. Okay. And again, when he came back, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know how to respond to him. He came a third time and said to them, Will you sleep and rest all night? That's enough. The time has come for the human one to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Look, here comes my betrayer. All right. Let's stop there. And sorry about that confusion. I think I was thinking of a different demarcation of closure hmm. there, but it's okay. So we have the first story, which this is the prediction of of peter's denial and i'm going to take this first section and then you uh please just add as much possible into this because um I, i'm not going to say i really enjoy peter's denial but peter's denial is actually a really important idea in hebrew literature but also just um well number one it is written for all people to see for all time and so it is Peter, the very person that is supposed to be cavalier and the one that is uh, backing Jesus, like the most vocal, the most, you know, violent almost, that he's willing to back Jesus in a very zealot, zealous way. And he then ends up denying uh, Jesus uh, in, this, in this scenario, in this narrative. Now, there's lots of social and emotional lessons that you can take from this, like, you know, pride uh, comes before the fall or, or things like that, where, you know, if we climb too far up the ladder of, of our own ego, then we will, you know, have a long way to fall when we are on, you know, a broken ladder. So, so there's lots of emotional things, but I just want to point out, um, a couple of things because it's really important to Hebrew literature, but also just the context of, of what we're speaking. So when he says, but Jesus said to him, I assure you that on this very night, 
before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So the question that I have is, well, why three times? Because that just seems like an arbitrary number at first. But if you understand Hebrew and what's called Hebrew numerology, now I want to be careful with that word because or that phrase, because Hebrew numerology can be taken too far can be taken to looking for signs of the times, can be taken to over-spiritualizing things and such. But remember that the Bible is written in pictures, metaphors, Hebrew language is metaphor, Hebrew language is built in pictures. So the same word can mean three different ideas at three different angles or allude to a bigger idea or allude to a bigger context or reality just with one phrase or one word. So when numbers are used in the Bible, you have to pay attention to that number. Now, it could be it, it could mean nothing like it could just be a number. Like if the number 56 is in the Bible somewhere, I don't even know if it is. But if the number 56 is in the Bible, it probably doesn't mean anything. That's there's been a debate about the 72 the followers, the 72. Is that a number or does that mean a bigger, larger crowd? Now, in Hebrew literature, every time the word, uh, the number 70 is used in all ancient East literature and culture, when they said 70 people, what that meant was a large crowd. So beyond Christianity, beyond Hebrew, beyond the Hebrew culture, beyond um, even like some of our modern, you know, religions, you go back into the ancient, ancient world, the word 70 is a really important number because it means a larger reality. So extra biblical material that's out there, you will see that number used as a bigger reality. So, so this is not something that's just unique to Hebrew literature but since we're into the Hebrew culture, so we're not into Hebrew literature, we're into Greek literature, but we're into Hebrew culture. So the numbers still apply because it's a cultural denotation of something bigger. So when 70 is used, it means a whole larger group of people. So 72 followers. That could be just a large group of followers. It could be. It's 72, though, so it makes me question, is it 72, or is it just a larger group? I don't know, but anyway. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a multiplier of 12. Right, mm -hmm. so, so that's another number, right? So it's things that are multipliers of 12, like 144,000. 12 actually is an interesting one because, because there's a notion of completeness with 12s the 12 tribes of israel the 12 tri the 12 disciples we see this association to a complete number of people so this 12 idea is well lunar turns and so there's 12 lunar turns and that's where we get 12 lunar months from um did the ancients look at the lunar turns and say 12 is the coup de croix of 
of uh, numbers. I have no idea. But in Hebrew literature, that idea is a sense of completeness. So 144,000 is a multiplier of 12 times 1,000. So 12 times 12 times 1,000. So 1,000 also means completeness. So the millennial reign of Christ or the millennial years, that millennium was a in comprehensible, uncomprehensible amount of years to a Hebrew Jewish person. So it's just a very long time, just like 70s, a large group of people. It's a very long time. It's it's a representative of the whole. Right. And so like when when they talk about the 12 disciples, Jesus didn't have just 12 disciples. Right. So then the like question then we just read for me. We just read, the, we just read the story of the of the of the upper room, right? Where it it makes mention of Jesus's other disciples. And right. So, so was there just 12? There was lots and lots. Right. So was there just 12? Now there's one's name by name. So we have to, we have to pay attention to that. So I'm not going to deconstruct that too much. Um, eight is another number. Eight actually means the resurrection. So we have seven days, uh, like the six days of creation, the seventh day rested and on the eighth day is the new beginning so we see that reflected in the recreation story of noah's ark where eight people on noah's ark so there's the resurrected that's a picture of resurrection that's a picture of new creation um circumcision on the eighth day according to jewish or or hebrew um, tradition out of Genesis, where we see on the eighth day, this new, like representing something. Um, you go into books that are extracurricular books, like the book of Enoch, which is a really quite interesting book where 8,000 years becomes the representation of the end and a new beginning. So the number eight is really important um, in Hebrew uh, culture. Seven is another one. Four is another one. Ten is another one. So let's go back to the number three. The reason why I'm telling you all this is to have some tools in your toolbox that when you come along, if you come along certain things in scripture, like if there's water in scripture, that means something. It means something more than what you're reading. It means that there's life, there's salvation, spirit is there, something is there. It's kind of like when a tree is being talked about in scripture, it's a bigger metaphor than just the fig tree sitting there. Um, and Jesus is hungry and mad at <laughs> the fig tree. So there's more to the story than just the tree. There's more to the story than just the water. There's more to the story than the number three. So when do I see three? Well, there's a couple of cases. I see the three in the, and you can say that this was thought up afterwards, or you can find it within. So we have a tradition of the Trinity in scripture, where we have a spirit, we have a son, and we have a creator God. So the spirit is the day of Pentecost type spirit or the spirit in the Old Testament coming down upon the people. You have the son, Jesus, and then you have the creator God, Yahweh or Elohim. So you have 
you have these three types of, and let's just say three gods, three persons in one person. So that's the tradition of the Trinity. Um, you can go around in circles all day long about whether or not you believe the Trinity as the Trinity has been traditionally presented. But the fact that there's three ideas there, um, Peter, James, and John are a lot of times used in scripture as three important people. Well, I would say that there's more to Peter, James, and John than just three dudes showing up in Jesus's life in you know, a triplet form. So there's just more to that story. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor love as you love yourself. There's three loves in the greatest command. It's not four, it's not 10, it's or six, it's love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's an actual emotional action of three uh, there. So Peter being denied, or Peter denying rather, he's probably denied many more times than three, but, uh, but Peter denying three times is a very important idea because in John chapter 21, John chapter 21 uh, is a scripture that reinstates Peter into Jesus's, uh, a Jesus relationship. So Jesus then approaches Peter and Peter of course is humiliated he denied him three times, and we're going to read that scripture here in a minute. Jesus predicts he's going to deny him. He denies him three times. John 21, which is not, this is not located in the book of Mark. John 21 then reinstates Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jesus reinstates Peter three times. When a Jewish male would go to the temple during this moment, and this is the moment of the Day of Atonement. This is the moment of the Last Supper moment that we're having here. And so there's a huge celebration. There's a huge uh, dinner party, basically, multiple, many days. And there's sacrifices at the temple. So every male, leader male of a household, would go grab one of their most precious lambs, and they would bring it to the temple for sacrifice. And this was their familial sacrifice, that that sacrifice was going to atone for the sins of all of their family and descendants. So they would bring this, this lamb to the temple. And the, the rabbi, um, the priest, would stand there at multiple entrances. There was multiple priests, but at multiple entrances, they would stand there and they would ask the male if they loved their lamb. Do you love your lamb? Do you love your lamb? Do you love your lamb? And every time the male would say, yes, I love my lamb. Yes, I love my lamb. Yes, I love my lamb. He would ask the person three times. If the person flinched, then he was then denied the sacrifice where he could not sacrifice the lamb for the atonement of his family's sin. So he denied 
he was denied or he denied the priest. The rivers, they, they talked about the streets ran with blood because there were so many sacrifices at the time. And, and this would go on scenario after scenario, person after person after person. It was the same three questions. So Peter denying Jesus three times means that the person, the leader male of the household, was holding the lamb of God, Jesus, and denying his love for the lamb three times. And therefore, Peter's sins were not going to be atoned for through the sacrifice of the lamb, if you can imagine. So Peter knew this. This is not something that Peter didn't know. So, and, and it's going on all around him at the time. So this is happening in real time. So Jesus using this metaphor is not just by accident. It is on purpose. The number three, either at the sacrifice or Peter denying three times, means an entire complete denial. The number three means a complete perfect number. It's a perfect number. It means that, that Peter denied Jesus in such a way that there was no chance of Peter at that moment receiving Jesus's salvation. So <clears throat> Peter then, of course, probably just wants to, to, to die at this point. You know, literally is just like later on when Peter actually denies Jesus. I couldn't imagine the emotion that happened, um, whether this be a metaphor or a real scenario, the emotion that happened just with hearing those words from, from Jesus. So <clears throat> later on in chapter 21 of the book of John, we see Jesus then approach Peter again. <clears throat> Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love, do you love me? Do you phileo me? Do you phileo me? Then he says, do you agape me? He actually asks him in different ways through that scenario, but reinstates him in different ways. And he says, then go feed my sheep. So the reinstatement shows a complete reinstatement. The reason why I find this really important is this taps into my thoughts of universalism. That no matter what we do, Jesus is right there and is going to reinstate us just like Peter. If you can imagine being the denier of, of, of Jesus. And even in that denial, Jesus comes and reinstates in a very beautiful way peter's salvation so and it wasn't peter peter wasn't the one that went and chased down jesus um trying to run after jesus saying no no please accept me too so so it's a beautiful picture of jesus actually reinstating jesus doing the work so this three this number three complete perfect whole um no loose ends, sealed. It's like the sealed number, the sealed deal.
So with all of that, give me your thoughts. <clears throat> you can go first, Ray. So I was just looking at John 21 in the Greek. Um, and, it, and it goes a little bit differently. So the first two times Jesus asks agape, Peter, do is you it agape, agape first? Okay. And then phileo. Right. Well, and then Peter responds with phileo. Yes. yes. So Jesus is like, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, as a friend. Right. And they do that. Yes, two I forgot times. about that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third time Jesus uses phileo. Yeah. So it's almost like letting him off the hook again. 100%. Well, the whole thing is letting him off the hook. But mm -hmm. I mean, now that you dig around in that, I mean, it even shows more that he's letting him off the hook. It's like you really can't mm -hmm. answer the questions right, can you? <laughs> yeah. So so t tell me again. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you agape me? Love me like a God. Mm -hmm. And Peter says, Jesus, Phileo. I love you like my buddy. Yeah. Right? Now, Two it times. could be more affectionate than that. It could be, Jesus, I love you. You are my friend. It could be more mm -hmm. desperate. Or uh, even brother. Or brother. Yeah, brother. Uh, but would that be storge? Oh, it might be. Yeah. So I think that I think that it would be more, you are my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, then Jesus says, Peter, do you love me like a God? And he says, I love you like a friend. Mm -hmm. And then the last part, then you're saying, Peter, do you love me like a friend? And he says, I love you like a friend. Mm -hmm. Which is quite endearing in mm -hmm. our modern thoughts. It's also interesting because in John, there's a whole lot of emphasis on Jesus being God, um, right. much more than in the other, the other gospels. Um, and so for Jesus to land on not being loved like a God, but being loved as a friend, um, kind of runs counter to one of the themes of the whole book. Right. Well, but, the, okay, so there's a problem with the book of John, because even people like N.T. Wright and such, they just don't appreciate the book of John. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't fit, and it, there's problems with it and such, and so... It doesn't, it doesn't fit if you try to put it somewhere it's not supposed to be. Right, yeah. and so there's, there's lots of theologians that wish that the book of John was just kind of thrown out the picture. Um, so I take the book of John after my studying of it and people who have studied of it, uh, I don't take it so in depth as this was the details of what was actually happening. Cause I think mm -hmm. that, I think that even like the seven pictures of John, the door, the way, the bread, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those, the, the whole thing is like a play that's supposed to be acted out. So what could that be on the stage? Cause I mean, really it is a, almost like a Greek theater play. Um, could that have been kind of a sarcasm? 
you know, yeah. moment that was yeah. being depicted there. Who knows? You know, I mean, it, it, you know, who knows what it would be used for, but I, but I, I think that, um, at minimum, it's a letting him off the hook. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. you just can't even answer this correctly. So fine. I'm, I'm your friend. Let's just be friends. You're in now. <laughs> just go do your job. <laughs> Where else do we see the number three? Uh, in this passage, Jesus oh. comes back three times and like, why are you all sleeping? Yes. Yeah. Which is true. almost mirroring that betrayal or denial. Denial. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. In, in Jewish context, um, I think probably the biggest idea of three would be the ironic blessing the <clears throat> right the may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord shine the lord's face upon you and i forget the third one right now as i'm talking well and it's also the the uh, anointing of the right ear the, the right thumb and the right toe yeah so the threes are are very like priestly when you think about it and so pa peter at the temple is denying jesus three times and right. they get that that shouldn't be missed mm-hmm. and then the idea so, go ahead and then the idea of um three as well for like the main disciples peter james and john we can say that um those i think have more connection with if you look in in Jewish history, the the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, a three threesome there, you know. And so you have the idea of of the 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 priests and the the patriarchs of of faith, right? Well, and now some people take numerology and they super spiritualize it. It's like super, super spiritual. So I'm not, I'm not advocating that we look for hidden spiritual, um, Bible code, Bible codes. Yeah. Thank you. We're not looking for Bible codes here because in numerology, honestly, it's like this. It's like saying in modern language, three strikes you're out. Right. So it would be, it would be known. It's, like it should trigger you to different thoughts, right? It should be, it no. shouldn't be this hidden. It shouldn't be this hidden agenda. No. Mm-hmm. So everyone knew that the number three or saying three, this or that meant a more complete reality. And so they would have read that and they would have went, oh, okay. So that means that Peter denied Jesus a, you know, not three exact times, but probably a bunch of times. And, and it was just a whole big number that just is encapsulated in this idea of three. Who I mean, who knows how many times Peter actually denied Jesus in small ways and little ways and mega it's ways. Pretty, it's enough. It's enough to say it's enough. And, <laughs> You're enough. If you, look, if you look at the idea of like this was not written. This is not written for a history of Jesus. This is written right. for a teaching lesson for the early church. 
And so what was the church trying to learn through this? Right. It's denial and it's like restitution and recovery and reconciliation all the way through. Right. Right. A couple of important ideas in the next section. The next section is Jesus and his disciples came to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means the olive press. And so in Gethsemane, they had these round uh, bear, like they look like round stone type uh, catch basins. And then there was a mechanism kind of attached to the side of this basin, which would have a stone. They would put the olives underneath the stone, and then the stone would just rest on top of the uh, of the olives and then press the oil out into this kind of stone catch basin. That's one type. Another type was kind of those depicted in old movies where you'd walk around with a with a crank basically a stick and a stone and roll over um, and crush the olives and then the olive oil would then drain out a spigot into a container um some are still there and preserved um they're around they have them there's different versions of them uh what they actually look like uh, but it's interesting that Jesus went to this place, the olive press place, um, and basically asked them to pray. Do you think that there is any metaphor here that we need to explicate? I think there is, but I'll let you <laughs> so go for it. If you think there is, why don't that, you That was make... a leading question for sure. <laughs> Well, I'll say this first. Olive oil has been for a very long time in the ancient world, especially the East, as a, well, you can use olive oil. You can use oil to emulsify. So you can take oil, and if you if you get glue or if you take a, a tag off of a piece of, let's say you buy something that's plastic and they have a tag, a white tag, printed tag, white tag yeah. that they stuck on there. And then you have to pull that off and then it doesn't all come off. So then you take part of it and you tack, 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 trying to get the glue off of there. You can take oil and you can rub that on that glue and it'll come off. So it actually cleans. Um, if there's something on a piece of glass, like a tag on a glass, you stuck an old piece of tape on there and you've used your razor and you're trying to, you know, razor blade and you're trying to get that off of there. You can use oil to clean that fully off of the glass. It becomes really shiny. Um, oil was used to preserve things. Oil was used to cook with. Oil was used in a lot of things. Um, temple practices, they used oil to anoint. Uh, of course, 
this picture of the stone and the oil is something has to be crushed or something has to be destroyed in order to receive the oil or get the oil. So oil is a sign of healing. Let the elders of the church go. Let the old men of the church go and anoint you, anoint the sick with oil, and they will be healed. We see that in the New Testament. Mm. So there's there's pictures of oil being used for healing. There's pictures of oil being used for being set apart and declaring holy for priestly duty. Uh, there's oil that's used in metaphor, like the lamps that go out or the lamps that stay lit. Um, and so you had different versions of oil. You had a commoner oil and you had a holy or then religious oil. And the religious oil was pistis oil. And that was, well, basically an oil that we use today. It would be like extra virgin olive oil. And it, it has a, you know, burning temperature that it burns in the pan um, uh, and, and basically become toxic uh, if you're not careful. But this is the oil that they would use in the temples. Um, it was expensive. Still is expensive, if you ask me. But it's expensive. Um, then you had Christos oil, which is the commoner oil. It's where we get the word Crisco from. So Chris, Christos oil um, is the commoner oil. And that was Jesus. Jesus was the Christos oil. And so the picture of oil at Gethsemane, Jesus and the disciples there, it's pretty hard to miss that metaphor that its salvation is here. It's great. Good job. That fits. <laughs> Any other thoughts to add then? I assume that the olives being crushed here also has something to do with crucifixion. Why not? <laughs> well, he does say later on, it's as if I'm dying. Mm -hmm. And then later on, it gets pretty desperate. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I mean, at least being destroyed or what they know, their reality being destroyed. Mm -hmm. Or even the pressure of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do much with oil anymore, which is kind of sad. But we're not into oil. What's really interesting is we go to, you know, big box stores and we grab our big gallon of oil and then we stick it in our cupboards and then we put that in our pans, you know, and we cook different things on it, right? Mm -hmm. But if you go to an oil store, yeah, in an oil store, they they um, they they hold oil in metal, so so you you can't just store oil in, you know, just anything. So they store oil. If you go into an oil store where you're buying different kinds of versions of oil they actually are stored in metal and they're very refined and some of them are 
literally hundreds and hundreds of dollars per gallon, um, if not per quart. So oil in the on the world stage is a very important commodity that I think that we just don't in like our United States, we don't really think about too much. Mm -hmm. Didn't the ancients put oil on their body? Yeah, in their hair. I mean, it's still a practice. Putting oil in your hair. Yeah. To preserve it or to clean it. I'm not sure. Put vitamins in your skin. Just make yeah. It... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. All right. You, you can still put oil in your hair. It'll give it vitamins. Really? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Do you ever put oil in your hair? Either uh, one of you? I don't know if I've used oil. We should I've all try that this week. Oily, but... What? I have a massive breakout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's look at 36. So verse 36 is troubling to me. Jake, why don't you take that scripture okay. and do something with it? Let's go. Uh, let me try to let me read it again. I'm not okay. sure where we're. I, I got not... it. Do you want me go, to read it go to Go ahead. You? Go ahead and read it to me, please. He said, Abba, Father, for you, all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. Um, so overused, (laughs) it's way too overused. I think an issue that we have is that we view Jesus as having to have died. He needed to die. There had to be blood, right? And we've talked about this before that like Jesus didn't have to die. Um, but I think he saw his end coming mm-hmm. very closely. Saw his pain, saw what he had to go through. I don't I don't think it was a it a reluctance, why not? Sure. It was, it was going to be massively painful. The the idea though is that Jesus didn't have have to die. Well, we know that from Hebrews that Jesus, there was no blood needed for the forgiveness Mm -hmm. of sins. Yeah, the scapegoat wasn't killed. Right. Right. And so, but also, I don't think Jesus knew that Jesus was going to resurrect from the dead. Right. Mm. There's, there was hope, there was a thought, there was some sure... But being human, like I think, I think Jesus probably felt like he his life was coming to a close. Yeah, and so, I mean, the anguish, the pain, the the suffering in this, I think, people try to say that it was it was the weight of sin on on mm. the, his shoulders, um, and then I think there's even scriptural allusions to it as well as people will try to figure out like atonement and figure out for forgiveness of sins and 
reconciliation. Yet, I think a better theology, a better a better roundabout is Jesus was just human and struggling with with what was coming coming up next. Mm. What do you think of the use, Sharia, of the word Abba? Because I have my own views of that um, that I think are pretty founded. But let me hear, when you hear that word Abba, number one, it's kind of triggering to me. Um, I don't like that translation. But uh, what do you think? Um, I'm thinking about the familiarity present mm. there as Jesus is praying. Um, and that seems to me unusual in jewish culture yeah um like there could be exceptions but i'm not aware of them and that just does seem very familiar and not um placing proper honor on god mm. i do know that it's only used several times it's only like three times mm -hmm. scripture. Um, Is it three... all this story as it shows up in three different places? Mm -hmm. It could be. So then it's only one time, really? No, no. I think Paul uses it. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. So, so the word Abba actually doesn't mean daddy. And that's what I struggle with, what people have done with it. So some people think that, and, and honestly, you can use whatever metaphor you want, you know, with God. And, and honestly, if you need to say mother, if you need to say mom, if you need to say it or the divine or the creator, I, I think that all of those what this denotes, this Abba actually means is the confidence in the person of God. So it's the, it's like the, the God, God, the El Elohim. It's the, it's the one that um, is in authority. So even the word father, you look at that that word and you could translate that as as founder and so the founder of all creation right so that would be what we would call creator uh i think that we easily translate those to father just because they're used in other ways as father but the idea of abba saying that that uh and christians especially some i would say um, emotional movements that have been out there uh, use the word Abba in a way that like is like oh daddy you know we mm -hmm. treat our we treat God in a very familial uh, uh, affection it is a, a warm affectionate term but it actually is just an affirmation term the affirmation of the creator so you could say if you wanted to um, in affirmation of the creator, you are God, <laughs> right? Just uh, this I idea. Mean, look, at your, look at your double context. So you have, in 36, you have Abba. Right. Which is Syriac. Right. And so it's this, it's this entire other language. 
Yeah. Which should, it's a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the Greek word next for father. Right. Which is, is the patriot is like, that is patriarchy when it comes from Peter. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is, that is that founding father that you're talking about, Kevin, that second word. Right. Um, yes. That's what I was saying. Founder. So it's, it's the, so those those two words together in text give give it the the father above all fathers or the 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 progenitor, progenitor beyond, yeah the progenitor beyond all progenitors right I think it, I'm looking would, oh go keep ahead. going you're fine I'm looking at the Greek and there's a an article in between Abba and father. What's so it the says, article? Abba, the father. Oh, okay. Nice. So even more so what Jake was talking about. Right. Yeah, but it, it is. Uh, Abba is, is a warm term, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the next, the next word is that it's that warm progenitor basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then we get into this three times they ret- he returns. Um, the third time saying, are you still sleeping and resting enough? So this has to be metaphor to me. There's no way around it that, that this is a lesson that whether Mark is writing this into the lesson or these details actually happen at this point, it doesn't matter to me that this is a bigger picture that, that we have like the return of Jesus goes away and then he comes back and finds them asleep. He goes away. Once again, he wants to go away, prayed, basically saying the same thing. It's not there by accident either. And then goes back and finds them sleeping. He came a third time and said, are you still get up? Let's go. My betrayer is near. So this idea of the, the adversary, right? That's circling the camp. That has been a metaphor for a very, very long time. Why? Because that's what packs of wolves do. That's what, that's what lots of predatory animals, um, either ancient or recent, they, um, they circle the prey. And so we see that they're in this place and there is a complete number of times that Jesus is tired of them sleeping. That sleeping could be not paying attention not looking for the adversary. Now, I'm not saying there's a devil um, on the outside of Gethsemane just um, lurking around. What I'm saying is metaphorically that there is spiritually asleep and spiritually awake. And Jesus is looking at these disciples as spiritually asleep. And it, it makes complete sense when he says in the end, my betrayer is near. And so the adversary is close. So the metaphor of be on watch, as it says in some of the other 
Paul wrote that to be on watch mm -hmm. that we see this as another way of saying you're not on watch be on watch the adversary is near now adversary means anything against Christ or anything against you so that is your enemy or the adversary the one or the power it could be the empire that the adversary empire the one that's gonna take this whole gig down is very near so even judas could have be seen as a metaphor of empire where he's selling out christ to the empire or that moment of whatever that empire i know it's not rome but that empire of of people that is against christ mm -hmm. yeah because you think about how pervasive the idea of empire is like it impacts the very way you think um and the way you form relationships and the way you think about relationships and how things ought to work together um so that idea of of watchfulness of alertness becomes mm -hmm. really important because empire is so subtle in how it sneaks up on you right right oh 100 percent and Sometimes we find ourselves believing that things are okay. And then all of a sudden, just out of left field, it's like, how come that was always okay? And then now it's not okay. It's because empire sneaks up on us. We're not really paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were talking about phrases that, that have been used, have been twisted to basically enable like this type of, We'll call it empire, but like I think the, the empire that we are in right now is this nationalistic uh, fortress Israel um, familial uh, is the is the peak of all existence, right? Mm -hmm. um, to define that, the church has for a very long time, because of ancient old Catholicism, has made sacred marriage so marriage is a sacrament in the catholic tradition so that is a holier status in the church being married with family that's a holier status your than quiver is full man like being single or being like paul or being like jesus so the catholics over you know hundreds of years made that a sacrament so now in modern church in evangelicalism it's still thought that being married is a sacrament it puts you in the status above mm -hmm. and so now we have focus on the oh. <laughs> on the family yeah, yeah but it's oh, all i just no, i see why you didn't didn't stop there i stopped there i went for it mm -hmm. um I forgot that even existed. <laughs> well, so, that's so that's some, nice. some ex examples of that. Blood is thicker than water. Yeah. So what the actual, what the actual phrase is, is that the blood uh -huh. of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. So it is completely opposite of what we take it as. That. And the disciples were dealing with that because they had to walk away. Literally, many of them had to walk away from their 
mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters mm-hmm. to be a disciple of the rabbi. So, mm-hmm. and, and that was considered the blood of the covenant yeah. is thicker than the water that your family, your chosen relationship, your ties. Yeah. Well, well, d- will define you more yeah than your familial status hopefully it should i think we're in a culture that definitely pushes back against that but right um the curiosity killed the cat mm-hmm. so don't go out and don't search thing but the the whole phrase is curiosity killed the cat but satisfaction brought it back and so it's an idea that go out and explore but know where you're satisfied at and go back to it. Um, what was another one? Well, I think that, I think that the, the, the reason why some of these little cute phrases that we have in modern culture have changed to, from their original meaning is fear, fear culture. So we are afraid to be curious, but look at what these disciples did. Like, well, look at what they're entering into what they had to leave, what they entered into, what they're enduring, what they're about ready to endure. Um, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. In our modern culture, we don't have, we don't have this. Um, and if we did, it would probably be deemed a cult, but it, it, we just don't have like the spirit of adventure like the disciples did, where we're willing to throw on a backpack of goods and go explore and figure out salvation or figure out nor, ourselves. Figure nor out. are we, are we dodging persecution and death because of religion? Right. 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 We are not being persecuted. Right. But even so, instead of being on watch, if I can tie it back to what we're the scripture that even this, even uh, this tells us to be on watch. This does not tell us to stay at home. And so our Christian mentality of evangelicalism tells us to stay at closest at home as possible and don't go out because you might get hurt. Yeah. So we don't talk to the leper. We don't talk to the persecuted woman. We don't talk to the other. We don't talk to the demoniac man. We don't talk to these people because it's safer to be at home versus tooling ourselves up to be on watch. We're actually sleeping. The evangelical church, I would accuse, and you know, I'll I'll do an altar call right now for the evangelical church if we want to. But the evangelical church can repent of being asleep versus just being on watch. And sleeping to me is we're so afraid of what, well, I've used this term before is basically adversary theology, where we're always just like looking for the devil under the rock. And we think that the devil's in library books. We think that the devil is in, you know, people that are like dressed up as women, like drag queens and stuff. We, We think that the devil is in that. And we're like, I'm just like, you know, that in my lifetime, library books and and certain people did not shape my like my trauma, my, my they didn't shape me that way. Trauma shaped me that way 
my relationships sometimes at home shaped me that way. And so library books didn't shape me that way. So I think that 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 our fear of certain things drives us to fall asleep in the garden versus being on watch and looking for people that are anti-love, anti-grace, anti-mercy. That's who we should be on watch for. Otherwise, we're just sleeping. We're looking at the wrong adversary. That's great. We're not looking at the we're not looking at the adversary. We're looking at things that we accuse to be the adversary. Help help me with this. Uh, our, if it has flesh and blood, it's not our enemy. If it has flesh and blood, it is not our enemy. Human beings are not our enemy. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers. That's why, that's why this idea of Judas is more of a metaphor for me because Judas is not the enemy. The empire is the enemy, the principality and powers. It's the opportunity they actually sold Jesus out. It's that opportunity that's the adversary. It's the, it's the acceptance of that money that's the adversary. Mm -hmm. It's the opportunity, it's the environment that's the adversary. It's like, why does this environment even exist, you know, to be able to sell out the savior of the world? Um, and like Sharia said, we have to be on watch because that empire is is sneaking up on us while we're sleeping. But I would say part of our sleeping is we're looking at the wrong thing. We're, we like think that something's our adversary, but then the empire just comes in and bites us in the ass. But. Well, ass is a biblical <laughs> term. <laughs> All right. Well, with that. Thanks, everybody, for joining <laughs> us. I appreciate each one of you. And hopefully, we, over the next couple of weeks, are going to get through the book of Mark. And we're going to move right into um, cool. cults. And mm. we're going to look at magic spells and spirits. And I'm really excited mm -hmm. about, about entering into that. So hopefully, we'll get to that over the next couple of weeks. So with that, uh, if you want to give to us, go to our Patreon page or go to ResonateLife.org and you can go to the Give tab and you can financially support us. Make sure that you make some comments and talk to us uh, about this podcast. We'll be answering them um, as they come through to, through the week as well. So thanks for joining us and good night, everybody. <laughs>